Well, are you living a cross-centered life? Are you living a cross-shaped life? In other words, what difference does the cross make in your life, in your workplace, in your family, in church? How does the cross affect your goals in life, how you treat people, what you value? Would your colleagues, your family, your friends see you as different because of what you believe about the cross? I think for many Christians, there is a, is a great disconnect between uh, belief and behavior, between theology and life. I hope it's not a problem here. Uh, there's not a problem with having too much head knowledge, as if knowing God's word better could ever be a bad thing. It's just that sometimes we haven't known fully enough. It remains in our heads alone. It hasn't been so absorbed that it, that it changes our hearts from within, changes our priorities, changes our values, our identity, our life. But in this uh, passage this morning, we're forced to reevaluate true greatness in the light of the cross. No longer in terms of power and status, influence, success but in sacrificial service. Well, Luke is uh, writing this uh, eyewitness account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. It's an account that has been cross-shaped throughout the gospel. Luke has been trying to help us understand the necessity of the cross and the meaning of the cross. And uh, we saw that especially last week as Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples. Jesus was preparing his disciples for his death. His body would be broken, his blood would be poured out, uh, and he would establish his kingdom. He would would save sinful humanity from the wrath of God as he bore it in our place. Uh, He would establish through his death a a new covenant, uh, uh, enabling a, a whole new personal relationship with God, built on uh, God's unconditional love and forgiveness. And the passage you might remember last week had a uh, somewhat sober and serious tone to it. It ended with Jesus predicting one of them would betray him. Uh, Look at verse 23 where we left off last week. They began to question one another. Which of them it could be who was going to do this? As we come to our passage this morning, we note that the topic of conversation soon shifts. Uh, perhaps from who the worst disciple would be, who would, dis- who would uh, betray him, to who might be the greatest of the disciples. Look at their dispute in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Now, when you first read that, it's very jarring, isn't it? I mean, here is Jesus with the utmost of seriousness on the last night before he dies, preparing them for his death. He's going to be bruised and beaten and hang naked and shamed the very next day. They have these final few hours with him and they're arguing about who the greatest is. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And it's not just a discussion, it's it's a heated dispute. They're fighting about it. They're, They're grasping with one another for power and position and praise. 
Now, to make matters worse, uh, you might not know, but this is the f not the first time that they've discussed these things. Uh, look back on the screen to Luke chapter 9, verse 44. Jesus has just said to them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. And immediately after, what are they doing? Verse 46, the next slide. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, Jesus shows their folly in, in his reply. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Well, I, I know that we preached on this passage some time back, so I went back and downloaded Andy Young's sermon on the passage. I highly recommend that you do it. It's a great sermon. He explains uh, in that sermon why Jesus takes the child. See, children were the least in society. Uh, a ch the child is, but the child is great because Jesus has received the child. The child hasn't made itself great. Jesus has received the child. And so true greatness is not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done for us. Everyone received by Jesus is great. And so we don't need to prove ourselves or compare ourselves to others. Don't need to feel depressed because other people seem to be better than us or or perhaps burn ourselves out because we're constantly trying to prove ourselves to one another. No, instead of worrying about our greatness, we can serve those who are the least, like children. But the disciples don't get it, do they? They haven't grasped the cross. Now, Mark's Gospel records for us a second occasion, uh, as well as this one, where the disciples argue again about Greatness. Have a look at Mark chapter 10 on the screen. Uh, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. He said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Same thing. One chapter later, they want power. They want position. They want praise. They want Jesus to serve them instead of, them as disciples serving him. They want to be installed at the right and the left. And Jesus gives a very similar response to what we have in Luke 22. Uh, he goes on to say, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, that their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But that's not all. There's also a third occasion where they argue about greatness. Uh, it's uh, next slide. Uh, it's recorded for us in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, we know that this is a separate occasion to the second one because Matthew also includes the second one as well. So this is the third one. They're still arguing about who is the greatest. Uh, uh, now, as a, just as an aside, I don't think it's uh, particularly credible to say that Luke just copied and pasted from Mark and then uh, you know, changed it out of order and put it here. Uh, the fact that Matthew has both of them shows that he definitely didn't do that. Luke 
carefully investigated everything. He put it in order. Uh, And so Matthew gives us the third one, uh, and uh, Jesus says here, uh, you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You You are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father, who is in heaven, and uh, by the way, that's why you should never call the pastor or a pope father. Just call them by their name would be good. And then verse 10, neither be called instructors, for you have one instructed, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So next line, we have uh, no less than four separate occasions This being the fourth, where the disciples are arguing about their own greatness. They simply do not understand the cross at all. Neither are they transformed by it. They're just like little children in the playground, fighting with each other. Now, this shouldn't really surprise us, I don't think. After all, the disciples are so much like us. How often are we obsessed with our own greatness? How often do we seek after power and praise and position, even in the church, perhaps even arguing with others about how good we are as Christians? I'm sure that's happened more than four times in your life. I know it's a temptation for me. So there is the dispute about true greatness. Well, Jesus patiently, very patiently, corrects our folly and defines for us once again what true greatness really is. We're at point two. Uh, Come back to Luke 22. We'll look at verse 25. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Uh, Jesus states here plainly what our world is like. Our world is obsessed with power and authority, and that power and authority is used for self-promotion and self-service. I think North Korea is a particularly good example of that. It's been in the news again. The regime living in luxury while the people uh, suffer immensely. Perhaps people would argue we've seen similar abuses of power here. So often in the world, rather than serving, the, uh, rather than, uh, serving others, the leader makes others serve them. They lord it over their subjects. They wield their power. They think their position gives them the the right to do whatever they wish. We see it with Trump. We see it with Putin. We see it everywhere. Of course, it's not just in politics, is it? It's in the workplace. If you've ever had a job, you'll know how people jockey for position. The constant uh, competition uh, between workers over who will have the next uh, job uh, job raise, job promotion, seed in families as well. So there's the first way. The second way is uh, people exercise authority is the benefactor Jesus mentions here. That's a, that's a title that's given by someone who gives money uh, to support a ruler. Uh, so you have a person with money exerting their influence. And again, that's the world that we live in, isn't it? People throw their money around if they have the means to use power for themselves. Now notice the sharp contrast Jesus draws in verse 26. But not so with you. But not so with you. 
Jesus' disciples must be different to the world. We must be countercultural in our conduct. What he says, verse 26, rather let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. Jesus here really turns the world's view of greatness on its head. Suddenly, true greatness is not about having power and status, but about being humble, being like the youngest, willing to have no respect to do the menial task. And true greatness is suddenly not about being served. It's about serving other people. It's not about having rank. It's not about belonging to some elite class. It's not about exercising authority over others to advance my own uh, interests. It's not about having money to change the turn of events. True greatness is about humbly stepping down to serve. It's so countercultural, isn't it? Leadership is about service. Uh, well, of course, we, uh, we see that actually this understanding of leadership is still maintained in the very titles we give to our government officials. We call the prime minister the prime minister. The word minister means servant. It's Christian language. The elected representatives who assist him are called ministers. They are there to serve. In the church, we call our pastors ministers of the gospel. It sounds like a very exalted uh, title, isn't it? But it really just means we are slaves. It means lovingly setting aside your interests to serve the needs of other people. And so if as Christians we're we're focused on getting power and influence and status and position and praise and titles, if our focus is on rising up the ranks, we're not living a cross-centered life. We're worldly. Here is how to think of Christian service. It's not wrong to be in leadership, of course. But we rise up the ranks, if you like, not in order to get things for myself, but in order to accept greater sacrifice, to seek greater service, to embrace greater humility as we look down to help those that we've been given to serve, even to our own cost. That is Christian leadership. Just consider for a moment what a different place your workplace would be if people were no longer living for promotions or bonuses but genuinely wanted to care for their colleagues and clients. Consider the way it would transform the way you think about Christian ministry. Uh, I think a a lot of people don't want to go into church leadership uh, for various reasons. Some do want to go into church leadership. Maybe they want to go into church leadership so they, they can have more influence, more power, set the agenda of things in the church. That's a very worldly way to think, isn't it? We should seek Christian leadership because we love people, because we want to serve people, because we want to sacrifice for people. That's the kind of leadership our our churches need, our workplaces need, our families need. And if that idea of church leadership is not particularly appealing to you, then it might be worth considering what that reveals 
about what you're living for in life. I think often when uh, people think about full-time ministry, some of the reasons why they are hesitant to embrace it is because of the lifestyle changes it might uh, require. Maybe they think about money or the hard work or the sacrifices. But if at the heart of Christianity is the recognition that we're no longer living for ourselves, that we deny ourselves, we're serving the king, then what would stop us from embracing the way of the cross and living in self-sacrificial service? Now, actually, as I think about our church, I'm so uh, encouraged to see how so many people actually embrace this way of life. Uh, you, every week, you, see, you will see people uh, willingly coming to church early and uh, arranging all of the chairs, setting up the welcome table, folding the flyers at the last minute because uh, the preacher's been late again, uh, preparing the refreshments, putting out the library, practicing for the music, arranging the sound desk, the PowerPoint, the prayers, the Bible readings. There are those who are not in the service right now because they've been laboring sacrificially to prepare the Sunday school lessons, the youth group. There are those who run growth groups. There are people who are involved in UCF, who work on the church magazine, who go to Cheshire Home, who run the social media, who are sacrificially giving money towards the work of the gospel ministry here, and much more. And so often it's unnoticed, and more often than not, it's underappreciated. But it is truly glorious. It is truly great that we live in this way. It's a sign that the gospel is at work among us. But we need to remember why we sacrifice and why we serve. Because when we get tired, or the ministry gets hard, or no one notices or I'm not appreciated anymore, it's so easy for ministry to be once again about about me and getting the praise that I want for my position. And so true greatness is about humble, sacrificial service. And of course it's Jesus himself who gives us the supreme example of this kind of life. And we're at point three, verse 27. Jesus asks, who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Jesus makes it absolutely clear here that the one who is the greatest is not Muhammad Ali, is it? (laughs) Jesus is the greatest. After all, he is the Christ. He is God's anointed king. He rode into Jerusalem on that donkey with a great crowd of people proclaiming that he is, he is uh, God's king. And not only that, if we, if we looked further in Luke's gospel, we'd see that he is, the, he is the eternal son of God. He can calm the storm. He can raise uh, the dead. He can heal the sick. He can feed the 5,000. All with just a word. By any worldly measure, no matter how you define it, whether it's power, status, authority, or whatever you like, Jesus is the greatest. He reclines at the table. In fact, if you just glance down to verse 30, he says, he promises the disciples that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Notice that he claims to be the king of heaven. He claims that heavenly banquet is his. 
There's no doubt about it. Jesus is the greatest. He deserves to be served by all. He deserves to be praised by all. He deserves for us to sacrifice everything to honor him. But look again at verse 27, what Jesus says. But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who created this world, who was worshipped by angels for eternity, enthroned in glory. He came into this world to serve. He was born in a manger. He grew up, he ministered to the poor, the rejected, the sick, the marginalised. He welcomed children when no one else would. He helped anyone in need. And position and status meant nothing to him. He was a simple carpenter. Of course, we can't forget what Jesus did on that night before he died. It's not recorded by Luke here, but John does in chapter 13. He washed the disciples' feet. Do you remember that? Chapter 13, verse 12. When he'd washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent me. If you know these things, blessed are you. If you do them, Jesus the master is willing to so humble himself he will take on the job of a slave and wash his disciples' feet. I haven't had anyone uh, lining up to wash my feet this morning. (laughs) But don't worry, I had a shower before I came. But that washing their feet, isn't it? It's a a vivid picture of an even greater sacrificial service that he would do that very next day at the cross as he would not just uh, wash their feet, but he would lay down his life on the cross to wash our blackened hearts from sin. Jesus, our Lord, was willing to suffer, to be in the abandoned, in the lowest place, judged by his heavenly Father. There was no cost he was not willing to pay to love us. Jesus truly is the greatest And Philippians 2 tells us to learn from him. Philippians 2 on the screen. Do do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In each of those passages that we've read, we're asked to consider the cross and to embrace the same lifestyle. Having been served by Jesus, we are to go and serve others 
And here we return to that uh, theme from chapter 9. True greatness begins with being served by Jesus. True greatness begins by humbly acknowledging that you cannot save yourself, that you need him to die for you, that you will never be great without him. True greatness begins with acknowledging Jesus' greatness. And in response, we offer our lives in the same cross-shaped manner, serving others. The example of true greatness. And finally, point four, we see the reward of true greatness. Now, notice Jesus doesn't uh, dismiss their discussion entirely, does he? He returns to it in verses 28 to 30 to assure them that actually their self-sacrificial service with him will be rewarded. Look at uh, verse 28. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials. In the face of pressure and opposition and rejection, they have stuck by him. They're not like Judas who's about to go out. And Jesus promises them glory as a reward. Verse 29 And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, Jesus gave himself in sacrificial service. He died on the cross, but that wasn't the end of the story, was it? He was raised again on the third day. He ascended to heaven. Uh, Philippians 2 uh, tells us, the next slide, God has exalted him given him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave himself in sacrificial service, but he was exalted as the greatest of all. And Jesus says to the disciples that they too will share in his kingdom rule if they will first be great in their service. Now notice again, it's Jesus' kingdom. It is Jesus' banquet. And notice the apostles, the 11, and then later Matthias will be the 12th. They're going to be the beginning of a new Israel, a new people of God. They are going to sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. As we've seen in chapter 21, the old Israel will end. Judgment will come. The temple will be destroyed. God will begin a new people of God based on the authority of the apostles. And they will share in Jesus' authority, not only in this age, of course they write the New Testament, but also in the age to come. This is a unique promise to the 12 apostles here. But of course all of God's people will share in his glory if we are faithful servants to the end. The point here is that the life of service will not go unrewarded. Greatness in the present through sacrificial service will guarantee greatness in the future in his eternal kingdom. The reward of true greatness. Well, I told you it was a short passage. What does it mean for our lives? Well, are you living a cross-shaped life? Are you living a cross-centered 
life. Has your priorities and thinking and attitudes been so shaped by the cross that you no longer see greatness in power, prestige, or praise? We are here, each one of us this morning, because Jesus served us and laid down his life for us, and he's called us to serve others in the same way. Now, isn't this so different to other religions? Think of Islam. I mean, it scorns the fact that God might die on a cross. Its focus is on power, and true Islam advances by power, as we know how different this is to Hinduism with its caste system where some people think that they are great simply on the basis of which tribe they were born into and scorn those beneath them. How beautiful this is to serve. And the ways we can serve are limitless, aren't they? Imagine a workplace where as workers we're concerned for the needs of our colleagues and our clients. Imagine if we're, rather than being driven by power and prestige, we desire to do what is right. And we so love those in our workplace that that we're willing to serve them in their ultimate need by telling them about Jesus. I think give yourself to living that kind of life, you'll be a fool in the world's eyes and you'll guarantee you're a nobody. But you will be truly great. And your life will be beautiful. And your workplace will be a better place. Well, what about in the home? Imagine if parents gave themselves to sacrificial service of the family, loving and caring for their children above their careers and hobbies and money. Imagine if husbands saw true greatness in in, uh, forsaking their own desires to sacrificially love their wives, being home more, helping with the housework perhaps. Imagine if mothers could so value discipling their children that if finances permit, they could leave their workplace and spend more time at home loving and discipling their children. It might seem like folly in the world's eyes, but it would be true greatness. What a different place our families would be. And what about at church? Imagine if we all are serving one another in love. Of course, service doesn't mean just being on a roster, fulfilling some role. That's important and that's helpful. But we can serve one another in many ways, by being regular in our attendance, by offering to pray for someone, by seeing a need and and fulfilling it, by uh, encouraging one another, by sharing what you've learned with them after the service, by doing the jobs no one else wants to do, and much more. might seem like folly to the world to invest so much time in church, but it would be true greatness. What a difference it would make to live in that kind of church community. Are you living a cross-shaped life? What difference does the cross make at work, at home, 
at church? How does the cross affect your goals? How does it affect how you treat people? What you value? Would your colleagues, your family, and your friends see you as different because of your belief in the cross? Pray that there will be no disconnect between our belief and our behavior, that we will be gospel-centered in our theology and gospel-centered in our life. And perhaps there are some here this morning who are investigating the meaning of life. Let me tell you, if you want to be truly great, trust in Jesus, who died on the cross for you, and let it transform you. Your life will never be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is uh, it's almost impossible for us to grasp that you, our creator, our judge, our king, might send your only son into the world to die for us on the cross. Father, we thank you that Jesus laid down his life. We thank you for rescuing us from our sins and guaranteeing our place at that heavenly banquet table. Lord, we pray that we would truly grasp the cross, not only in our minds, but it would shape our hearts, that in all of life, at work, at home, church, wherever we are, we might be those who humbly and sacrificially serve others for the glory of your name. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.